Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. Pelvic floor issues can be physically and emotionally painful and sometimes embarrassing as well for any individual regardless of gender or age. Add gender dysphoria and the transgender experience to the mix and the potential for harassment and exclusion as well as abuse from the medical establishment is multiplied. It's an environment in which inclusive care built on trust is a fundamental prerequisite to any subsequent treatment and in which sensitivity and consultative respect is paramount at every step in the healing process. Physical therapist Hannah Schoonover points out that these things are hallmarks of patient-centered care and that they should be guiding principles for all healthcare practitioners with all patients. Still, there's a lot involved in ensuring inclusive rehabilitation for patients across the gender spectrum. It requires considerable education, strong communication skills, dedication to evidence-based practice, and a whole lot more. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, Hannah speaks candidly about her own learning curve, discusses her clinical practices and philosophy, and expounds on a blog post she'd written in which she detailed the specific experiences of a patient she calls Greg. But that's not all. Greg, too, joins us to discuss his journey as a transgender man, his decision to seek Hannah's assistance, the reasons he felt safe with her, and how he ultimately came to feel, in his words, reconnected with his body. Here's our conversation with Hannah and Greg. Hannah, you wrote a post on your clinic's blog last fall titled Pelvic Floor Physical Therapy and the Transgender Experience. Um, I'd like to deconstruct that a little bit. Um, First of all, for the benefit of our listeners, when you talk about pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, what do you mean by that? What types of things are entailed in, in uh, in that designation? Pelvic floor physical therapy is just physical therapy to the muscles that line the inside of our pelvis. So just like if you sprain your ankle and have to go to a PT for a couple weeks after that, you can have similar things that happen with the pelvic floor that are just as random, that are just as, you know, injurious. Um, And those things often manifest as sexual pain, urinary changes, bowel changes generally issues with with that department, um, as it were. And we work to eradicate those. Can you talk in a general way about uh, sort of the the transgender experience as it relates to pelvic floor issues? I mean, what physically may be part of that experience such that your participation and expertise are needed? When it comes to pelvic floor therapy in general, it's a really, really intimate experience. I mean, you're dealing with, like, muscles that don't traditionally get talked about, let alone touched, let alone touched in a way that is, you know, respectful, consensual, and medicinal kind of at the same time. Sure. Um, So when it comes to specifically trans health, I mean, the rates of trans violence uh, is much, much, much higher in that population. Um, In in 2009, um, 50% of the people who died in violent hate crimes um, were were trans women, um, which is, like, a shockingly high number. Um, So when it comes to treating folks who are trans, we have to be aware of the fact that 
their experience is going to be different. There's going to be more sexual assault. There's going to be more violence. There's going to be more discrimination, more bias. There's going to be people who don't know the right words or the right pronouns or don't gender their patients appropriately. It can be a frightening experience, and you're throwing all that into it and then adding on to this bias, and it's it's definitely a much, much harder experience to have to work with. What's your background in physical therapy, and what was your learning curve in, in kind of navigating all this? I actually started as an orthopedic physical therapist, and it wasn't quite my bag. I didn't love it, and I didn't love it because I felt like it completely and totally missed this whole huge piece of what it means to be human. Like, people were coming in with back pain. We weren't correlating that to the pelvic floor because they're connected. And I just felt like all these answers I was supposed to be giving patients and people and clients, I I didn't have access to that until I could speak the pelvic language. Um, So I took a bunch of classes through the APTA and the Herman and Wallace and was like, oh, my God, this explains everything. Holy, Holy God, it's here. And then once I found that information, um, and I was like, okay, cool, I can start, you know, talking the talk, walking the walk, I realized that all of my clients were cisgendered women. And I was like, that's interesting. I, I don't have any any queer folks. I don't have any trans folks. Um, and so I was talking with some of my friends and realizing the level of uh, medical bias that does go into being transgender and how a lot of folks don't feel safe to come to medical practitioners. And so I really wanted to work to change that and make sure that that our clinic was specifically a safe haven, that all bodies are good bodies, and we're going to make sure that all bodies feel the way they are supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, So totally random, honestly. Mm-hmm. So, but how, how do you get that message out? I mean, obviously your, your clinic does have a lot of experience with that population now, but how, how did that happen? Word of mouth was a big thing. We also offer pro bono appointments to folks who identify outside of a gender binary um, mm-hmm. in case there is any sort of um, financial restraint. We do a lot of advertising on social media. We do a lot of advertising at queer events, kink events, um, pride, that kind of thing that just say, hey, you know, we exist and, and we're going to help you too. Um, And then, honestly, we did a lot of education for practitioners in the area to make sure that doctors were kind of on the level when it came to trans competency. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Hannah, in your blog post, you you specifically related the experience in physical therapy of of a patient you called Greg in the post. And you noted at the outset that he'd initially uh, fought the recommendation to seek physical therapy for pelvic pain that he'd been experiencing really for months after a total hysterectomy, with the result that his pain had become, you wrote, quote-unquote, deeper and more complex. So, again, let's deconstruct that. First, you wrote that putting off treatment for pelvic pain is something that, quote, unfortunately is all too common for patients who are transgender or gender non-binary. Why is that uh, um, so so common? I think a lot of it goes to when... um When a trans person goes to seek medical care, they know how to refer to their body, and they call their body certain things and different parts on their body. And then they go to a doctor, and the doctor has, you know, all this medical knowledge and these years in school, and they're experts and all this stuff, and they will tell you that you have vaginal pain. Well, what if the patient doesn't have a vagina? They may have the structure that is consistent with a vagina, but it's not a vagina. And honestly, that can be enough to be like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. They, they're not taking the time to listen to me. They're not taking the time to call my body what I call my body. So throw in there again any sort of medical violence, throw in there misgendering, throw in any sort of trauma associated with 
with that part of the body and you know is is a patient really going to sign up for potentially you know once a week for two months having internal pelvic exams with essentially a complete stranger maybe not so when it becomes you know deeper and more complex what that means is um you know what started off as a fairly routine wouldn't need a ton of therapy to help a person feel better well then it becomes chronic pain and then it goes into the central nervous system and suddenly now they have hip issues now they have back issues now it's this whole multifactorial pain complex not just I have a little bit of pelvic pain. I had a hysterectomy. I need some very basic medicine. Right. Um, it, it becomes more, which is frankly horrifying. We see it all the time. We're very fortunate to to actually have Greg here with us today. Um, so we we really appreciate your joining us, Greg. And can you tell us a little bit about what you were going through and and why you did choose to endure the pain as long as you did, and what convinced you to it, to at least contact Hannah's clinic? It's kind of a two part um, answer. So initially, what brought me to reach out to Hannah was, so I was having some discomfort, some pain, some pressure following the hysterectomy, um, but it had been probably like two to four months post-surgery, um, but it wasn't the discomfort or the pressure or anything that I was feeling that made it so important that I was willing to you know, deal with the the weirdness of seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist, it was the mm-hmm. fact that essentially my orgasms had gone from basically like the equivalent of like shooting a shotgun to shooting a BB gun. Um, that, that, yeah. <laughs> that was important enough for me to start looking for some help. Um, I had a friend who had also recently gone through a hysterectomy and she was having some other complications um, and told me about um, working with a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, so and I didn't know anything about I didn't even know they existed other than you know sort of hearing about it through like sex therapy work. So at that point I was like okay I need to do this. So there was pain before the hysterectomy. I was sort of naive and thought the hysterectomy would just get rid of. There was some sort of like I don't even know how to explain it groin pain and some of the other pain and problems I'd experienced I actually really wasn't paying much attention to um, until after I began working with Hannah because um, I didn't realize until working with Hannah, I was how much I was actually feeling and what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had worked so hard to sort of disconnect from my body and dissociate from mm-hmm. that particular part of my body that I just was like, well, this is how it is. And I'm not going to think about it because it doesn't match how I see myself, how I identify. So I was trying to avoid it altogether. I thought the hysterectomy would just sort of fix it. Well, it, it sounds like once you started seeing Hannah, you, you kind of learned some things that maybe you hadn't been thinking about, and it became kind of a broader thing than you at first initially had thought it was going to be. Absolutely. What I started quickly to learn um, working with Hannah was that there were a lot of ways in which I was sort of altering my body in terms of posture, gait, sort of hunching over, various things I was doing in my body to try and emulate sort of a look more masculine, sort of hide parts of my body that I was uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't realize I mean Hannah mentioned it earlier sort of the pelvis is sort of the center of everything and I didn't realize that what I was doing you know with my shoulders was eventually going to affect my hips and my legs and my pelvis and my back and like it's all connected and I had no no idea until Mm -hmm. I started working with Hannah. Well, Hannah, you you made it clear in your post that uh, that your work with Greg was 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 very gradual. It started over the phone, and and uh, it, you didn't even directly uh, focus on the pelvic floor for 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 some time. Can you talk about that process and and the reasons for taking things at, at the rate that you did? 
So I generally approach all patients with that model, um, not just my trans mm-hmm. folks or my non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally believe that jumping right into pelvic floor therapy, it creates a – it can create, I should say, a power dynamic that I don't like to work within that just says, I'm the doctor and I'm going to tell you what to do now. I like to have more of a conversation um, because my ultimate goal with any patient ever, again, regardless of gender, is do they feel safe? Do they feel that I'm going to do what they ask me to do, that I'm going to stop when they tell me to stop? And if I'm doing an internal pelvic exam, hi, nice to meet you. Let's see if you're in a place you don't want them. They might not trust me just a little bit. So, you know, a patient may not necessarily like me, but they got to trust me. So I generally like to start with a lot of down regulations, nervous system down regulation activities that just say, hey, we're going to lower your heart rate and we're going to help you learn to engage your respiratory diaphragm when you breathe and we're going to close our eyes when we do some gentle body work and we're going to we're going to sit in silence for a little bit or if a patient needs it, you know, we're going to have a, you know, we're going to complain the whole time, whatever we need. But basically, we're going to move really slowly so not just their brain but their body welcomes me and allows me into that space with them because, I mean, Mm -hmm. again, such an intimate experience that if they're not comfortable, what's the point? I'm just going to make them feel worse. So, yeah, we, 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 we tend to go pretty slow. A quick break to tell you about Choose PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national public awareness campaign. America is currently in the grips of an opioid epidemic. In some situations, dosed appropriately, prescription opioids are an appropriate part of medical treatment. But opioids only mask the sensation of pain, and opioid risks include depression, overdose, addiction, and withdrawal. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging healthcare providers to reduce the use of opioids in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy for treating pain. Learn how a physical therapist can help you at moveforwardpt.com slash choose PT. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. Greg, can you talk about what that what that gradual process was like for you, and and how Hannah, how successfully, and and over what period of time you began to feel safe with Hannah? Um, in terms of safe, I think it was a while, and that's not due to Hannah. It was due to my own sort of right coming to connect with, be okay with, trust somebody with that part of my body. Um, but um, she just she just talked about it, and, and basically. I wanted a whole lot of education. I wanted to understand what she was doing. Um, and so she explained things to me. Um, like she said, you know, she was willing to talk about things or not talk about things as we were doing them, um, just in order to make me feel comfortable and make and help me trust her. The fact that she has such education and understanding of the kinds of dysphoria that um, that I or other trans people might feel related to various body parts, um, that education alone was enough to help me begin to trust her. She started with, like, all right, let's talk about um, what she didn't start with, but she did talk about, like, all right, what do you call this part? Like, how can we refer to parts of your body that feel comfortable for you mm-hmm. um, so that I could actually be present in the room as opposed to feeling um, talked at or, like, just wanting to get away because uh, she wasn't listening or she wasn't um, understanding how... Uh, vulnerable this was for me. Did you feel like those experiences, as you described them, were, were different than what you were hearing from uh, from from friends and, and people you know in terms of their experiences with uh, with people in healthcare? 
Yes. It was different. Hannah mentioned earlier, uh, doctors sometimes will deliberately misgender patients. It, I don't know how frequently it happens, but I do know it happens. Um, despite even patients advocating for themselves and saying, you know, look at me, just, do you think that that pronoun matches what you see? And based on a, you know, a body, a sexual body part, a doctor may still say, well, that's what I'm going to call you. Or just doctors saying, you know, this is the medical term. There's no reason to feel ashamed of it. There's no reason to feel uncomfortable with it. But there is a reason if that body part, if that term doesn't match with an identity of a person. Um, so I do, I've heard it, I've experienced it myself. So it, it, it does happen, unfortunately, and, and it was um, quite relieving when mm -hmm. Hannah just laid it out and was like, I know this happens, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, let's talk about this, I want you to feel comfortable and I want you to feel like you can trust me. Hannah, I, I want to ask you, uh, one of the subheads in your post uh, read, uh, with care and consent, we gently progress to internal work. So I, I want to ask you what's involved there in terms of the various elements of that statement, uh, the, the care and consent elements as well as gentle progression. Well, the big thing, I think, with, you know, the idea of care and consent is those things should always be highlighted for any mm -hmm. pelvic therapist ever, but especially for a trans person and especially for someone who may have dysphoria issues, the consent comes less from kind of the traditional, like, yes, no binary and more into the I'm consenting here but not here. I'm consenting for you to touch me on this body part but not this body part. And maybe in three weeks we can reevaluate that mm -hmm. that contract, that conversation. Mm -hmm. So when it came to working with Greg, um, we didn't start with um, the part of his body that we ended up referring to as anterior genitalia. And I don't know if that's still the word that he uses currently. But so we started with the posterior or the back. We, you know, we started with intraanal work, intrarectal work, because that allowed us to get to the pelvic muscles just as easily as any other route of entry. Um, it wasn't specific to any gender. It's just we all have one. So as far as being able to introduce some elements of pelvic work, it was a gentler progression. It was a way to get our foot in the door that, you know, didn't make him feel uncomfortable or scared that he had to show me parts of his body that maybe he didn't want to show me just yet. I, I, we ended up doing, I think, one or two interior, uh, internal anterior sessions, um, but... It was mostly for uh, doing a hormonal test. I don't think we did too many releases there, if I remember correctly. Like it, it, once or twice, if that. I mean, I think Greg can speak more to to that particular memory. But we only did just you know the bare minimum of what would potentially make him feel pretty uncomfortable. And we mostly did stuff that was just really within his wheelhouse. That still gave me all the data that I needed to to move along as treatment. Greg, is that your recollection as well, or do you have anything to add to that? That's pretty much right. Basically, you know, I was kind of in control and, and dictating, okay, we can, I'm ready for this, I'm ready for this. And uh, it was, I think it was two times, I think, I don't remember, I think it was two. Um, but it was, from my perspective, what do you need from this part of my body to help me move forward? You know, what kind of information? And if you need, if we need to stay here for a while, fine. But if, if that's not the course of action that needs to be taken, then we'll, we'll get out of here. I do remember the first time we did an anterior internal release, I actually did not 
the best job verbalizing what I was going to do in that I normally do a thorough visual exam looking for color, you know, is there any sort of you know, skin changes, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mention to Greg that I was going to do that. And I actually, like, really, I think, violated a sense of his privacy immediately. And I felt terrible. It was awful. But it was also one of those things where, an honest mistake, we moved past it really, really quickly. It did not ruin our working relationship, as far as I know. Greg, please chime in if um, <laughs> if I have severely misremembered that. But there was an element of, like, no, that was not mine to look at at all and I should have been much more clear and verbal and I you know I think it was a nice learning moment for everyone of like okay yeah I'm learning too <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> on your experts um, right and, and the lesson you presumably incorporated uh, the next time you're in a similar situation oh you make that mistake once in your career <laughs> <laughs> right right I thought it was just me so, uh, Hannah, I wanted to ask you, you, you wrote also about uh, the roles that a couple of things, slouching and hormonal issues, can play in pelvic issues that may be experienced by, by trans uh, patients. Can you talk about those factors? Those, those were a couple of things that, that, that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, actually, the hormonal stuff is one of my favorite things to talk about because no one talks about it. So uh, Greg has been on um, HRT, hormone replacement therapy, for how long? 14 years, I think. All right, so a good long while. Yes, Um, I'd say that qualifies as a good long while. Good long while. Um, (laughs) But we found um, that his anterior genitalia was actually testosterone deficient. And for someone who's been on HRT, you kind of assume that your hormones are pretty steady. You kind of assume that things are at their appropriate levels, and they've been monitored, and there's some doctor in some lab somewhere who's like, yes, perfect. And we found a hormonal imbalance. So Greg had a periurethral gland um, hormonal deficit. And when we did an anterior internal exam, I did a what's called a Q-tip test at the Skanes gland, the periurethral glands. And they were quite painful to the touch, um, which usually translates to low circulating or unbound testosterone. And so he had to go see a doctor and go on hormones of all crazy things. And, like, you you never would have guessed in a million years that, you know, this guy has been on, you know, tea for 14 years. Like, oh, you need to be on more tea? Like, it was kind of shocking. But if you think about, like, the Skane's glands and how... They're your primary androgen receptors of that part of the body, and if they don't have enough testosterone getting to them, well, they go into shutdown mode. They go into shutdown mode. Pelvic floor becomes this whole just, ugh, this pile of pain, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if we can get the Skanes gland to cooperate, oftentimes we don't have to do a ton of internal work because it naturally calms down the whole system. It's like when you get caught in a rainstorm and you're in a pair of, like, really tight-fitting jeans, and then you get home and you're just stuck in wet jeans, and you just mm-hmm. get in, like, a really bad mood. Mm-hmm. That's what Skanes glands do to the pelvic floor. you got to take the jeans off. You have to <laughs> get rid of the irritant. It's not that they're supposed to be irritating like that. You've got to get out of it. And so we had to do that with Greg, which I, I don't think either of us really expected. We're like, oh, huh, didn't do this with more people. Is that hormonal issue something that there needs to be more uh, education about, do you think? Hugely. And I think not just for trans folks. I forget, Dr. Goldstein, Dr. Andrew Goldstein, has a statistic of 11% of adult American cisgendered women 
who have been on oral contraceptive pills, I believe, for six months or more, will develop the same glandular disorder. So it's affecting a lot of people. It's 11% mm-hmm. of people who wow. take the pill. And so if we're thinking trans folks who maybe don't want to get a period, maybe are using methods to not get pregnant, all really valid options, but potentially they're getting missed on this really big health concern that could potentially be coming from taking those pills in the first place, even though they need it to, you know, fully live their gender. It's like, well, what if there's this tiny unintentional injury that's happening? We -hmm. can treat it, no problem, but we got to know it's there. The other thing I had asked you about was uh, slouching. Can you talk about that a little bit? The way I always think of the pelvic floor is it's being on the receiving end of all the pressures that happen throughout the day. You know, you sneeze, you cough, you laugh, you bend over, you, you lift your kid, all that goes into your pelvic floor. But your pelvic floor has to work with, you know, your transverse abdominis, your abdominal muscles, your multifidus in the spine, your respiratory diaphragm, in the dome of the rib cage, and all four things have to work together to create this nice, safe, you know, pressurized zone, if you will. So what happens if one of those pieces is out of commission? I always use the example of a, a can of soda. Um, if I hand you a can of soda right now, completely unopened, and I say, hey, Eric, can you can you break this can of soda with just your hand? Unless you're the Hulk, the answer is no. Um, And now if I pop the tab and say the same thing, no problem, I can do that. Easy breezy. But if we pop the tab on any of those four pieces that combine to form your core, so pelvic floor, multifidus, TA, and diaphragm, all other three pieces then have to kind of hypercompensate to create some semblance of stability. And if we're talking slouching, we're talking a spine that's not necessarily in its most stable form, either because the abdominals aren't supporting it or because the spine itself is injured. So potentially you're taking away your multifidus support, potentially you're taking away your TA support, throw the respiratory diaphragm in there, which posterior all connects right to the spine, and suddenly people who are really into their cell phones in 2019 might be getting some mm-hmm. pelvic floor issues that we don't know about just by virtue of the fact they look at their phones when they're on the bus. So something as simple as slouching is suddenly now symptomatic or indicative of a larger symptomatic issue that maybe it really wasn't before. So when it comes to like progressing slowly, what the heck is their spine doing? Um, if we're just treating the pelvic floor but not looking at the bigger picture, is the pelvic floor really going to get better? No, probably not. Mm-hmm. So, so how are you addressing that as a physical therapist? Are you just saying, like, don't do that? <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> don't slouch when you, when you look at your phone. I mean, what, what are you saying? Lovingly, yes. We, we yes. <laughs> I'm personally a bodywork physical therapist, so I, I work in a very tiny little closet office um, with just a, a table and not much else. And so my role in the physical therapy um, relationship is to release tension in the fascia and the muscles, um, that kind of thing. So when I see slouching, let's say shoulders coming forward and slouching, someone who's more orthopedic might say, well, we need to really need to strengthen their back. We need to really strengthen the back and strengthen the abdominals, which are completely valid. And my entire brain goes to, oh my God, their pecs are so tight though. If we don't mm. release the pecs, what happens if we try to strengthen their rhomboids? Does it matter? Ditto their sternocleidomastoids. Ditto, you know, anything in the front. If if we're not releasing what's pulling everything forward in the first place, does it matter for strengthening the thing that's getting pulled? I, you know, I think it's a, a bit of a two-sided coin. I think you need both. Um, mm-hmm. But so the role I play is kind of reducing the slouching, yes, with with some gentle reminders of like, hey, maybe check your phone a little bit less or hold it up to your face, but also maybe it's not under our patient's conscious control to slouch in the first place. What if they're just really tight? 
Hannah, the, 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 the last subhead in that, in that blog post you had written was um, helping patients reconnect with their body is also part of the treatment. I, I was interested in that, in that word, reconnect. And uh, so I'd like to kind of, in, in starting to close, ask both you and Greg, in, in whatever order you, you choose to answer the question, what's meant by reconnecting with one's body and, and what the importance of that is in, in, in treatment? For me, reconnecting is, is a great word because, you know, humans are born with certain, you know, we know how to breathe. We have a solid sense of what our mechanics are supposed to do. And a lot of the things that then plague us as we get older, as we become more immobile, sedentary, whatever, those are habits that we learn. It's, they're habits that teach us to leave our body and say there are things that are more important than, than the body. It's more important to get the work done. It's more important to catch the bus. It's more important to work out, whatever it may be, whatever your priorities are. My priorities are a little bit different. I think that you have to fully inhabit your body in order to in order to have a full life. Um, if your pieces aren't moving the way they are supposed to be moving to maximize the amount of time you spend in those tissues, that's a problem. We need to work mm-hmm. on that. So when it comes to reconnecting, you know, it's not all just namaste and meditation. Those are great things. But at the end of the day, like, do you feel your tightness? Do you feel your pain? Can can you map out in your body where certain things are happening, where certain things are feeling? And I like my patients to be able to point those out to me. You know, if the patient's having a really bad emotional day, um, yeah, I'm having a really tough day and my stomach really hurts. Great yes, let's map that out. Let's figure out why when you feel emotional pain, your abdomen is the thing that's giving you grief. Great, mm-hmm. we can treat that. That's a physical mm-hmm. thing that we can put action to. Um, and we can start kind of marrying the, the mind-body and the mind-body connection to make it a little bit easier for people to really really feel what's going on. Greg, can you talk a little bit about re- reconnection? Very similar. Well, similar in some ways and, and sort of the opposite from Hannah, except in the ways that, like, you know, everybody talks about mind-body. For me, it was body-mind. Um, my body was this thing that um, basically, like, I fed and I got in a car and it drove places and it did the work that I wanted it to do. Um, it, at times, you know, allowed me to um, experience sexual pleasure. But that was it. Like, it was just this thing that I, like... This utilitarian thing. Yeah, and because I spent so much of my life feeling betrayed by it due to transgender identity, but also I like I'm a pacemaker and I felt very betrayed by my body in general. It was just this thing that I didn't want to pay attention to. And so I didn't pay attention to slouching. I didn't pay attention to sitting around. I didn't notice anything. And so when I think about being in my body or reconnecting with my body, I think about feeling things. I think about what it feels like to have strength and sit up and stretch the pecs and um, engage the rhomboids. You know what I mean? Like I'm feeling more open. I'm feeling confident in my body. And I think for me, being connected in my body and feeling more present in it, feeling more alive in it, helps me not feel so anxious or so depressed or so sort of spaced out and dissociated and just working on whatever this thing is in my computer in front of me. It sounds like to you uh, it was more maybe connecting with your body as opposed to reconnecting because it sounds like you weren't very connected with it to begin with. For the most part, yeah. I mean, so I got – when I was a kid prior to puberty, I was pr- I was pretty connected with my body with the exception of the sort of heart thing. Um, mm-hmm. But after puberty, um, I sort of left it. And mm. so it has been really a sort of a, a, a connecting. 
So I guess one last question I have for, for both of you, uh, again, in whatever order you, you care to answer, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that we haven't covered or that you feel is pertinent or that a message that you'd like to, uh, you'd like people listening to this podcast, uh, to know that, that perhaps we haven't covered up to this point. I would say the best kind of advice I was ever given that I want to pass on to people, practitioners, you know, whoever might be interested in the information. Um, your trans friends, your non-binary family, your agender next door neighbor, whatever it may be, um, they don't owe you education. They do not owe you their experience. Um, it is up to us. It is up to uh, you know the cisgendered community to use our gender privilege and to put the work in um, because when our trans you know, folks come in to see us, especially in, say, medical offices, they need us to show up. They need us to to get it right the first time or as close to right as possible. Um, they don't need to be your token trans friend. They don't need to be your token, you know, non-binary client, whatever it may be. Um, so I think that that was the best thing anyone ever told me is do the work um, beforehand. Um, and then when you actually see your patient and get to do the work, it's it's the same as anyone else, honestly. There there is no difference. Um, but um, you know, Greg came to me and he did not owe me his story. And I I like to think we just had a very normal working relationship. He just happened to be trans, no big deal. Um, and that's that's I think uh, that's what I hope people start to realize about trans health, um, trans people in general. Um, th- th- there's no difference. It's, mm. it's it's just not that big a deal. Uh, Greg, this is your this is your bully bully pulpit. Anything anything you'd you'd care to add or or for people to know? I'm thinking about you know uh, trans or non-binary folks in general um, who may have who may be altering your body through surgery or not, um, but experiencing pain, discomfort, tightness, and a fear of getting any of that addressed um, for all the same reasons that we've been talking about. Um, but as you attempt to connect with your body and live in your body and feel um, aligned and authentic in your body, um, do yourself a favor and reach out to therapists um, or doctors who are gender-affirming that can help. We carry around emotional pain, um, but we don't think it actually affects our bodies, but it does. So what I'm hoping is you have top surgery, your pecs are going to get tighter. You're probably going to slouch anyway. You can open that up and feel a whole lot better um, with physical therapy. And if you have bottom surgeries or not, and if you have pain, discomfort, pressure, orgasm issues, whatever, there are therapists that can help. So check out LGBTQ clinics or centers in your area. See if they have trans um, any sort of resources for trans-affirming doctors. If you don't have any in the area, check out surgeons and see if they have resources. You might experience a little bit of social anxiety, hopefully not, but find some physical therapists. And in some ways, you don't have to tell them anything, depending on the physical therapist. You don't have to give them your story. But be persistent with yourself. Be insistent that you don't have to feel pain every day. Well, Hannah and Greg, both of you, thanks so much for speaking with us on Move Forward Radio. We really have appreciated it. Yeah, thank Thank you you so much for having us. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. 
Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at moveforwardpt.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by moveforwardpt.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at moveforwardpt.com.